There, there's always one identity or more that we share. So it's a matter of creating a ritual space where people can find those other identities. And I think the ritual lubricates or makes it easier for someone to shift the identity that they are speaking from so that people yeah. start talking to each other as two mothers rather than Muslim, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, whatever. You are listening to the Music and Peacebuilding Podcast, a professional development network at musicpeacebuilding.com. Exploring intersections of peacebuilding, sacredness, community creativity, and imagination through research and story. Dr. Lisa Shirk is Senior Research Fellow for the Toda Peace Institute, where she directs the Institute's social media, technology, and peacebuilding program to study the impact of social media on conflict dynamics and to encourage civil society movements to use peacebuilding skills to address disinformation, hate speech, and digital harassment. Shirk is also a senior fellow with the Alliance for Peacebuilding and visiting scholar at George Mason University's School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution. She taught in the Graduate Conflict Transformation Program at Eastern Mennonite University for 23 years. Dr. Shirk has authored over 40 articles and numerous books and book chapters. Her books include The Little Book of Strategic Peacebuilding, Conflict Assessment and Peacebuilding Planning, and The Ecology of Violent Extremism. In this final podcast of Season 1, we explore one of Shirk's earlier books, titled Ritual and Symbol in Peacebuilding. So you have a long history of writing and thinking in the peacebuilding field. Uh, And I'm interested about how you decided to move into thinking about ritual. Yes, great question. So when I was in graduate school, um, I had just finished a two-year term of voluntary service with Mennonite Central Committee, which is a relief and development organization in Canada, working with indigenous groups on land rights and indigenous human rights. And so I went into the graduate program coming from a, a culture, working with people who have a lot of ritual and a lot of uh, symbol in the way they do their work um, and their community life. And so what I what really struck me in graduate school was that so much of the field of conflict resolution and peace building was so um, front frontal cortex oriented, sort of mm. this um, rational, you know, verbal communication techniques, which I think are really important. I I don't undervalue that part, but I felt like all the books I was reading really were ignoring all of the symbolic and ritual aspects of peace building that I had just lived through uh, for two years of living and working with um, First Nations indigenous people in Canada. So then about two years into my graduate degree, I I did this summer um, internship, you could say, with the Institute for Multi-Track Diplomacy, which they were doing um, peace-building work between Greek and Turkish Cypriots on the Mm -hmm. island of Cyprus. 
And the leader, the facilitator of that work, uh, Louise Diamond, incorporated a lot of ritual into her peace building work. So she was a Jewish peace builder. And even though nobody in Cyprus is really Jewish, they're Mm -hmm. um, from different cultural backgrounds, she wanted to share her culture by inviting the Greeks and Turkish Cypriots to a Seder uh, Passover dinner um, that the Seder service has a lot of symbol and ritual um, and so I just really observed that Louise Diamond had this way of both teaching the negotiation skills that are more of the Harvard model of, of win-win negotiating you know communication based interest based mm-hmm. communi- uh, negotiation but then like weaving through these moments where people were dancing together, singing together, telling stories together, sharing about their families and eating together. And it was these these moments that were really the most transformative for the the group. Mm-hmm. And so I I sort of felt like there was this sort of missing dimension of the field of peace building that would examine ritual and symbol and you know how emotions are a really critical part of how people think um and so if we're if we're trying to remove emotions or manage them in a in a sort of western conflict resolution technique where you know we, we kind of think of emotions as useless or something to be managed rather than a source of change for people. Dr. Shirk speaks about the Eurocentric bias to believe that ritual is less rational and therefore less important than rational thought. She writes, Ritual actions are not to be dichotomized with thought. Ritual is simply a different form of thought of communication. Using the example of her education in First Nations smudging ceremonies, Shirk speaks of how communities move intentions deeper in areas of kindness through ritual. Can you talk about maybe our bias toward, or maybe our bias against thinking of ritual as a rational way of being? I think the Western mind, Western philosophers have... um, overemphasized the frontal cortex and and rationality in the way we think people change their minds or what guides people's behavior. And so there is a presumption that people think their way through problems and then choose to act in a certain way. And I think the reality that is now being realized through neuroscience is that people actually act their way into being, that it is the emotional brainstem core that really controls more of our behavior. And if we can create new neural pathways, which, you know, sort of actually entering the change process of behavioral change through the way we act, we Mm -hmm. can eventually change the way we think. But... Hmm. 
like it it we don't actually usually change our mind before we change our behavior it's usually a behavioral change that happens first and so this idea of ritual as we act our way into being you know from the first nations communities that i was working with i tell a story in my book about the smudging ceremony where before every community meeting there was this ritual and most of the time the elders would lead it without explaining what it meant so part of my dissertation research was interviewing them to understand what this ritual meant but the idea was that they would light this uh, put on fire this bowl of herbs with cedar sage other herbs and it would start to smoke Mm -hmm. and people would take that smoke in their hands and they would pull it over their eyes to see only good intentions in what other people were doing and saying at the meeting. And they would pull the smoke to their ears, like to wash their ears out so that they would hear only good intentions of what other people were saying. And then they would pull the smoke from the bowl to their mouth so that they would speak clearly and in a way that exhibited care towards others and they would pull it over their head and to their heart so that their Mm -hmm. intentions of their mind and their heart would also be pure and so this ritual would begin every meeting and i think the western mind thinks well well why couldn't you just write down those rules and pass them out or why wouldn't mm-hmm. why do they need to be re why does the ritual need to be done in front of every meeting you know like if it's just a rational thought that we should be kind to each other then you know we would think our way into being kind to each other but the ritual mindset is the opposite that we must do the actions much our physical bodies have to breathe in that smoke and we have to go through the actions of washing out our mouth and our ears and our eyes because mm-hmm. from that action that symbolic action then we actually have a better chance of behaving in the meeting the way we really want to behave so in your book, just so we define it for our audience about what ritual actually is, you define ritual as a unique social space, embodied being, and then a process of either reinforcement, formation, or transformation. Can you talk a little bit about like what makes ritual ritual? Yeah. So there's what we call spatial markers in a ritual. So in uh, the smudging ceremony that I just described, the smoke and the burning herbs creates a visual and a a smell. So you see the smoke and you smell the smoke. And so it creates a space that is set apart from the rest of life when there is no smoke. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea that you're using the senses of sight, smell, taste, sound, etc., So, um, you know, in Buddhist meditation, there's the ringing of the bell that creates the space of now this is a meditation ritual. There's sort of, um, you know, in the in the Jewish Seder that I was discussing earlier, the idea of, um, you know, drinking the wine at certain parts of the ceremony. And it's that taste that is setting the space apart 
or it's the prayer that is repeated that is setting the, the space apart. So that there's all these sort of symbolic, sensual ways that ritual space is different from regular life. And so this is a different use of ritual than the word habit. Like, so a habit is not the kind of ritual I'm talking about. The kind of ritual I'm talking about is something that the second part of the definition, it's either forming or transforming our worldview. So it's influencing the way we think, either by trying to remind us of core values and ethics of what it means to be a human being or by changing the way we believe so that we act differently you know and i think the ritual of smudging and bringing the smoke to our eyes and our ears is a is a forming and a transforming it's it's te- it's teaching kids about this intentional way of life where we see good intentions in other people. Um, But it's also like transforming us every day as we go through the day and maybe we're unkind or we're angry or we're not thinking nice thoughts about other people. Mm -hmm. It transforms us to a place where we can live out those ethics and we can remind ourselves that we want to behave in a different way. Lisa Shirk writes, Symbols condense information about the world into a single, unified form. The American flag is a symbol to people around the world for the government and goals of the United States. Yet the symbol can be interpreted in different ways, as a symbol of either freedom or tyranny, depending upon the worldview of the observer. Symbols are ambiguous precisely because they allow for multiple interpretations. If we move to talking about symbols and why symbols matter, so this is where we start connecting with Suzanne Langer and her idea of maybe symbols as a way of knowing. Can we talk about how symbols seem to condense information and that they also seem to have power because they're ambiguous? Yeah, so I think even speaking more widely, you know, Mm -hmm. most people can think of a rainbow or a butterfly as a fairly simplistic symbol of hope or beauty. Mm. But these are really deep cultural symbols of, of transformation as well. When the rainbow comes out, it's a transition between the sunlight and the rain. And the butterfly is a is an example of a rich of a symbol that is about transformation because this this creature that's now with wings used to be a caterpillar, um, and I think that those are very simplistic symbols that people can recognize that are used in popular culture. Mm-hmm. But it's it's almost easier to talk about symbols like that are so rich that you don't even actually recognize how many things they communicate <laughs> in the world of communication studies uh, and uh, the study of metaphors and the way people frame ideas. So, you know, in the spring when it's time to do our taxes, what are taxes a symbol of to us? And, um, and how has the communication that we use to communicate about our taxes, mm-hmm. you know, how does that shape our behavior and our political beliefs? 
And so there have been studies about this, sort of thinking of taxes as a burden that need to be relief, relieved. So we talk about mm-hmm. tax relief, and that's a whole symbol, symbolic frame that makes taxes seem like a plague, something that, that needs to be gotten rid of or reduced, whereas the more democratic and actually more European way of thinking of taxes as a public investment as something we do with joy because we want to live in a society where we have good roads, we have good education, we have great health care. It's this really positive view of taxes as something we do because we want to live in a beautiful community where everybody has enough and where things are taken care of in the public sphere. These are two symbolic frames on the same word or the same idea I think it just shows you actually how powerful symbols are and how loaded with multiple meanings they are and how important it is for us to unpack our assumptions of symbolic connotations for different people. And Mm -hmm. again, when if we want to transform the way people think and act, we have to be thinking in the field of peace building about this symbolic level of meaning and it's underneath, it's, it's the unstated assumptions and connotations that people associate with controversial political issues like immigration. Right. So it's immigration about people bringing diseases and illegal acts and um, crime and death. Mm-hmm. Um, or is immigration about human rights and um, fleeing from terror and poverty or bringing new skills and a new workforce uh, and more diversity to our society, which improves us and helps us all grow. I mean, the symbolic frames of immigration and taxes are just two examples of just mm-hmm. how symbolic framing is, is so important to how people think and act. Yeah, I think one of my favorite things to do with students when I'm first introducing them to the field of semiotics is to start off by showing them political advertisements, because political advertisements have a minute and a half to two minutes to get their message across. And they've figured out that you can say sometimes a whole lot more symbols than you can with words. And I love to take students back to Ronald Reagan's advertisement of, of its morning in America again, and you know to see the symbolism of the sunrise and a person getting married and a person raising a flag. And you can layer so much meaning in those spaces. Right. And and this is, again, where I come back to the neuroscience, because our brains are really highly developed in terms of understanding symbols and coding things mm-hmm. with image and smell and sound. So there's a lot more going on in our brains than just the words that we say or, you know, just sort of the simplistic, superficial, rational part, I think, of um, mm-hmm. what we think is going on. And so... You know, in in watching a movie, you can train yourself to start hearing the musical tones that are changing and how Mm -hmm. that music makes you feel different or how the shades of the lighting in the movie is signaling something to your brain that your brain picks up on way before you've actually realized, oh, I think there's something scary coming up or, oh, this is going to be a beautiful scene because the sun is coming up and the music's relaxing or... You know, there's sort of, um, I think most artists, filmmakers, they, they understand that 
these sensual and symbolic ways of communicating are really very powerful. Music education philosopher June Boyce Tillman has written about the power of a liminal space as a space of dreaming and imagining where realities can be reformed through artistic processes. Using the example of the liminal space of the wood in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, she writes, In the wood, the humans lose their power to a band of fairies, and so their responsibility is temporarily removed, and they are in the power of something beyond the patriarchy of the prevailing culture. They enter the realm of their own vulnerability, and they enter it together. Magical thinking answers a deep human need. It is a way of making sense of things that would otherwise seem painfully arbitrary, things like love and beauty. Artists understand the power of the arts as liminal space where we lose ourselves in the grandeur of the moment, moments where melodic descent might become grief an interval, a triumph, or harmonic resolution as profound moments of being. So let's transition to liminal spaces. You cite Victor Turner's work, and I I love his work on communitas and these ideas of liminal spaces. And, And you talk about how liminal spaces create a feeling of equality. They can invert hierarchy. They can frame intentional relationship. Uh, they can open channels for feedback, and they can shape new actions. So, talk about this place in limbo, and like, why are liminal spaces important? Yeah, I think um, I think particularly for conflict. So, if I'm thinking about designing a peace building process for a group, a country, even. You, you want to introduce these, this, this kind of a liminal space because people are usually frozen. I think in conflict, our ability to think creatively and to dream and imagine something different than what we are currently in becomes very limited. And it's interesting right now with climate change, uh, I see people struggling to create a liminal space where we can imagine surviving on the planet. And the liminal space is um, happening, I think, on the edges as cities decide that they want to do something different than the nation that they are living in. So they are um, just opening up a much broader array of creative solutions and having brainstorming sessions and turning things upside down, which is what the liminal space does when when you reject all the frozen assumptions of how the world should act and what it should be like, and you almost start from scratch or you turn it upside down and you reverse things and... Um, you know, the the communities that are inviting the corporations to come and be the audience listening to the indigenous leaders and the community leaders talk about mm-hmm. what they want for the future of their of their community, you know, sort of just flipping upside down who has the power, who has the ability to shape the future. 
I would say in Afghanistan when I was working on the peace process, everything is so gendered and so divided by male spaces and female spaces and occasionally there would be this opportunity for men and women to sit together and dream about what Afghanistan looks like in 20 years. Mm-hmm. That felt like a liminal space where it was a room maybe in a hotel conference room. It wasn't a beautiful ritual space, but it was so different from the outside world that the rules of what was okay to say and what was okay to do were different there. And so anytime you can create a space outside of a frozen, stuck conflict and rewrite the rules, that's going to be helpful to finding creative solutions to problems. Shirk spoke of the power of liminal space in lubricating our identities, finding common identities and spaces where we can reimagine ourselves, our relationships, and our context differently. You know, the way we tend to become very fixated in who we are, depending on on the conflict. So I spent uh, four months in Israel-Palestine a couple years ago, where obviously the Jewish-Palestinian identities are very, very strong. But, you know, I went to an environmental conference where Palestinian, Israeli, Jordanian environmentalists were meeting together about a shared problem, which was pollution in the in the rivers, in the water, in the air. And, yeah, their identity was really shifted in that conference space where they were They were scientists, they were environmental activists, they were community workers concerned about a different problem other than being Jewish or Palestinian or Israeli-Palestinian. The liminal space, the ritual space of something set apart can make it easier to see other identities that we each hold because each one of us belongs to many different groups from our education level, our profession, our language, our region, our gender. Um, And so we can really always find something in common with another person, even though there may be a, a huge political conflict between my people and your people. There, there's always one identity or more that we share. So it's a matter of creating a ritual space where people can find those other identities and yeah i think the ritual lubricates or makes it easier for someone to shift the identity that they are speaking from so that people yeah. start talking to each other as two mothers rather than muslim christian muslim jewish whatever And in your book, the only example that we haven't talked about yet is when you talk about women's groups and and creating patriarchy-free zones and the use of like a candle to create sacred space for women that feels empowering and freeing at the same time. Could you speak to what that example does for identity in a different way? So the example that I wrote about in my book was actually the one that moves me the most is how women's groups across the world are creating new rituals um, 
And so most rituals that we think of are traditional or uh, passed on or transformed mm. space. But but this is a very uh, it's it's a very sacred or religious ritual that these women's groups were creating for victims of sexual abuse. And and the one that struck me so much was yes, you you light a candle to help set the space apart. But there was a woman who wanted to bury a childhood dress for for the girl that she had been who had been sexually abused to kind of help her transition from victim to survivor that mm. um, this girl had lost her childhood she had lost so much and in her place this woman who was now a survivor was living and strong and looking to the future and wanted to put to rest this young girl who had been so wounded. So the ritual act of having a burial for a dress, and the dress was representative, it was a symbol of the mm -hmm. abused childhood. It was a religious ceremony, but it was improvised, it was created by these women's groups. And I interviewed dozens of women across North America who are part of women's groups that have created rituals to help women mark different transitions in their lives, to feel more empowered, just to, to sort of bring into being the person they wanted to be. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah. And if we talk about worldviews, because a really important part of your book is this idea that ritual can encourage advers adversaries to see themselves and others through other lenses. And, and so we're able to take off our lens and maybe even using your example earlier about being able to think of each other as mother rather than thinking of each other as different from a religious context. How are worldviews shifted in your experience through ritual? So, you know, there's actually different parts of the brain that have different ways of processing information. And the neuroscientists that I quote in my book or that I cite, um, and, and this is really old neuroscience, the field of mm -hmm. neuroscience has evolved a lot <laughs> thinking about this, but, yeah. you know, it's, it's as if each part of our brain has a different window on reality and has the ability to create create new ideas and and new ways of thinking about things but we have to enable that to happen and i think ritual and symbol connects parts of our brain in a way that transforms our worldview so allows us to see a problem or a conflict or a situation in a new way Mm -hmm. And so for that woman who buries her childhood dress in a, in a funeral, she is actively changing her worldview. She is acting her way into being. She wants to change and she wants to act it out as if it's, it's the behavior, it's the motion, it's the symbology of it that will lead her to feeling like a survivor so that... You know, yeah. she can be at the funeral, she can cry and access the emotional part of her brain that experienced abuse, and she can grieve the loss of that child and go through that emotional space and then sort of um, allow mm -hmm. herself to move on after the burial as 
a new person who is a survivor. Yeah. Yeah, I think your reference of neuroscience is so good because in the time since you've written the book, I feel like neuroscience has only strengthened its idea that emotions are the central part of how we form some of these worldviews and that in many ways we need to um, de-escalate our, our, our sympathetic nervous system, our, our, our fight and flight response, our centers of fear, and that once, as we do that work, that's what allows us to lubricate ourselves into new worldviews. Exactly. So I don't want to end this conversation without maybe talking about the dark side of ritual, because I think that it's important to hold that, that ritual is not just a universal good. And, and you talk about this in your book, that rituals can also be used to harden identities and worldviews, and they can be used as a tool for oppression. Can you talk about instances where you've seen rituals used for harm rather than for good? Absolutely. Yeah. So ritual is a powerful tool that can be used for good or bad. Mm -hmm. um, and I think an example is this morning in Washington, D.C., there's the National Prayer Breakfast, which is supposed to be a religious liminal space where policymakers, political leaders from the Democratic and Republican sides come together, they pray, they talk about ethics and values. I don't think it was that this morning. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So in reading about what happened, you know, it's it becomes hijacked to say, you know, Jesus is on our side and uh, we pray because God wants the Republican Party to win the election and the Democrats are evil and bad. You know, so I think many times religion and gen general religious spaces are used mm -hmm. to justify political opinions and beliefs that often are not freeing um, and maybe harmful or dangerous. So, um, and certainly, you know, in Charlottesville, Virginia, with the, the march in 2017 of the white nationalists, the white supremacist groups, they had torches, they had, you know, fire <laughs> that is so traditional for so many rituals, and they had mm. chants, and they had loud music. They definitely created a ritual space in which to share their hate and, um, you know, threaten people. And uh, they were definitely upset at the symbols of the statues, the monuments um, that were important to them and their identity. <laughs> so uh, mm -hmm. it's a, definitely an example of the flip side of uh, how ritual can be used. Um, for harm. And I think um, Hitler and Nazi Germany had so many symbols, so many songs and marches and so much liminal space that transformed a nation into killers, into a nation that could commit a holocaust. And I think that's the most compelling reason why peace builders should think about the power of ritual, because ISIS and every violent extremist um, terror group uses ritual to transform its numbers to enable them to do harm. 
And so ritual and symbol are incredibly powerful. And if we are in the peace building field only trying to change behavior and attitudes with rational words, we're missing, <laughs> missing a huge mm. part of uh, what it means to be human. While ritual can have dark sides, Shirk speaks of ritual as silent poetry as she describes the Egyptian-Israeli peace process under President Jimmy Carter. Understanding the momentous nature of that peace process, Prime Minister Begin had asked President Carter to sign photos of Carter, Sadat, and himself for each of his eight grandchildren. Carter's secretary obtained the names of each of Begin's grandchildren so that Carter could write a personal note to each. Quote, When Carter handed Begin the photographs, Begin's eyes watered. The photographs had triggered thoughts of his grandchildren and their future in a war-torn region. A few minutes later, Begin announced that he wanted to keep working on the peace process, as photographs centered thoughts about the future of his grandchildren and opened a door to his identity, not solely as a world leader, but an identity as one with deep love for his grandchildren. So how has your thinking changed in the time since you wrote the book? I wouldn't say it has changed a lot. Um, I would say my field has come along with me. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was... Uh, kind of ridiculed by my professors for um, having a dissertation on this topic in the 1990s when nobody else was studying it. And uh, it just kind of went nowhere for for me. I mean, I, um, I abandoned it in search of other topics where there may be more interest. But I have continued writing it about it more in the last five years. So I have three or four chapters that have come out in books in the last four to five years um, that are focused on ritual. Um, so I wrote one, actually it's not out yet, called uh, Rituals in an Age of Terror from Trump to the Taliban that looks at extremist groups and the rituals that they use and how people who are trying to work for peace or are, are using ritual in an age of terror and, and white nationalism. So yeah, I keep writing about it. I don't think my thinking about it has changed that much. I, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. just relieved that more people in the field are talking about neuroscience and understand symbolic uh, framing and, and the power of ritual. And that includes you in this in this interview. So I'm grateful that you're interested in this and you're exploring it. And I look forward to hearing more of your podcasts to learn what you're doing. Special thanks to Dr. Lisa Shirk for her time and scholarship. Links to her publications and website can be found on our podcast website at musicpeacebuilding.com. If you are as fascinated as I am, by symbol and ritual. I highly recommend her text on ritual and symbol in peacebuilding, as well as other music education, peacebuilding, and anthropology texts that will be listed on our website. As we close this first season of our podcast, I close with a blessing taken from the thoughts of Dr. Lisa Shirk. 
may you enter a rainbow and hold the blessing of symbol, transforming sun-soaked water droplets into beginnings and thresholds, transforming smoke into reminders to seek best intentions. May you dance to music, transforming metered time into rituals of shared being. May we honor joy, happiness, pain, and grief, bearing violence and fear, and giving birth to love. May we signify the dance of our time together. Listeners, it has been a joy and a pleasure to spend time in this first season examining and centering the voices of this podcast. I am eternally grateful for all the ways in which I have grown, learned, and changed through all the hours that I have spent on this podcast. And most importantly, I am grateful for you. I am grateful for the time you took to listen, for the many people who have written feedback, and for all of those who have engaged in our podcast. Thank you. This is the Music and Peacebuilding Podcast, hosted by Kevin Shorner Johnson. At Elizabethtown College, we host a Master of Music Education with an emphasis in peacebuilding. Thinking deeply, we reclaim space for connection and care. Join us at musicpeacebuilding.com.